You are now listening to the Minority Trailblazer podcast. Let the story begin. One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin. Hold me down. Welcome to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast, and I'm yours, Greg Eel, the Culture Change Agent. You already know on this show, we interview young, successful minorities in a variety of fields to educate, empower, and inspire our current and future generation leaders. And today, I repeat, I have one of the best podcasts I have ever recorded. And I say that honestly, one of the best I have ever recorded. It takes you up, it takes you down, it takes you all around. It's emotional, it's intelligent, it's descriptive. You learn, you live, you love, you cry. And I'm not just making that up, I'm serious. This is literally one of the best podcasts I have ever recorded. I know you're going to love the show. This woman is dope. She dropping gym after gym after gym and story after story. And you can tell she's a professional. She's an expert at what you do. So please, please make sure you tune in and enjoy the show. I just got a couple housekeeping things. Then we're going to read the bio and we're going to jump right in. One, uh, thank y'all for, for dealing with me, man. Last week I had an event. Shout out to North Carolina A&T State University and Amazon, man, for being our first official partner. And our first official sponsorship for a live event, man. They uh they sponsored us at North Carolina AT. We had a phenomenal time, man. Shout out to Donna Boone, uh, Amanda Baker Lane, Brittany Hicks, Mariah Allen, uh, Terika Fasakan, um, and and so many others, man, that contributed to support, man. Shout out my boy Trevor Nelson over there, Jada. Uh, it's so many, man. Students and faculty and family alike, man. We sold out the show. I had Chick-fil-A y'all living in that thing, man. It was a great experience. So, unfortunately, I was unable. Shout out to my boy, Sidney Evans, man. Mike Farrell and the whole Minority Trailblazer team, man. Love y'all. Man, it was a great experience, man. So, I can't wait to take that show on the road. And it's just uh, the first of many things that we're going to be introducing with certain companies. And guess what? They were able to talk they talk to, though. They weren't just out there just spewing. You know, I go lie. Some of y'all tech companies, y'all send y'all black reps out there. They be spewing like the Kool-Aid, some of the Kool-Aid and all they can talk about certain X, Y, and Z. Nah, they kept it real. They kept it funky. And it was really a, a value add. And um, I, I appreciate uh, Amazon for getting behind it. Uh, so shout out to the powers that be. And they know who they are, who made it happen, who really made it happen. Thank y'all for continuing to fight for us. And, and this is for all my people out there, man. When you get into a position, man, fight for your own. Fight for your own. Fight for your own. Don't just ask. Don't just inquire. Don't just push something and let somebody else that probably don't look like you 
just say whatever or do whatever or dismiss whatever you got to fight for it. you got to bring it and see it all the way through man so i love that man uh second next week i will finally be releasing next week or the week at the next but uh sooner within the next two weeks i will finally be releasing the dates official dates i know i released some dates earlier this year official dates of the tour man we've been working hard behind the scenes on some things i promise you hard and we are finalizing some things i jumped the gun a little bit i did i got excited i jumped the gun so bear with me um and that's all i really got so let me jump into this bio and let's get this thing rocking let's get this thing rocking she is a successful entrepreneur keynote speaker and author of the 2019 release leading your parents 25 rules to effective multi-general leadership for millennials and Gen Z, where she shares leadership principles and practical advice for young professionals seeking to transition into leadership positions in today's diverse workplace. I know that was a meaty title, but long story short, these are the rules how you as a millennial or Gen Z, if you're listening to this, can effectively lead your teams that honestly, quite frankly, are older than you nine times out of ten and probably don't look like you man so it's really really practical it's not some it's, this book is legendary as a valedictorian of her college graduation class she was one of the youngest ever executives of a fortune 50 company where she spent nearly a decade working she also owns her approach that yields her results whether as a speaker, author, or founder and president of the Charlotte-based Center for Next Generational Leadership and Professional Development, which is a startup focused on providing soft skill development for the leaders of tomorrow, she also uses her formidable leadership skills and business acumen to help millennial and Gen Z professionals reach their full potential as leaders and change makers. She has reached thousands of young people from podiums around the country and partnered with dozens of industry-leading clients to help them attract, develop and retain young professionals she's also facilitated training with students of world-class universities all across the united states and she is genuinely and i can repeat genuinely she came pulled up on me in durham north carolina came to the studio and delivered this hell of a podcast provokingly honest yes and infectiously inspiring from the hood to the university valedictorian to corporate executive and now here with you today somebody live and direct in the studio, in the lab, man. Like this is this don't happen all the time for this podcast, man. So I'm excited to bring her on. Please help me welcome to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast, Raven Solomon to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Listen, I can't. I can't believe I'm like one of few to be in the lab. You know what I mean. So I'm just grateful to be inside yeah. where all the magic happens. Yeah, man. This is this is uh this is great times, man. Um, like I said, when I first ordered your book, and I got it in the mail because I, I mean, I, I I thought my book was pretty decent. It was like this, and I opened this, and I started reading. And I was like, yo, this is like the one of the most robust books I've ever purchased in my entire life. Like, I, I'm not saying it just because you're here in my presence, but like, I'm serious. Um, wow. and I ain't done yet. But I'm getting there. Um, and I can't wait to just jump right into the process of writing a book because I know you really took a lot of time to it. You were very intentional about it, very pragmatic. But also, too, just exploring your journey um, about the book and also, too, what the next steps are, man. So I have a lot of questions in store. And it's going to be a very introspective, very personal. Um, and, I, and I always say a legendary interview. So we always start the show off with two things. First, Let's start the show off with a quote or a mantra that you live by or stand for and share with us a story about how you apply that quote or mantra to your everyday life. Wow. So, man, 
A quote that I absolutely live my life by is by a guy named Charles Schwal. I believe is how you say his name. But it says that life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% of how you respond. Okay. And so that once I, you know, spend the next couple of minutes telling my story and sharing with your audience some of the ups and the downs and the blessings and seemingly curses, you'll understand how it plays out in my life consistently from a day-to-day basis, really. Um, so many things have happened in my lifetime, whether they are, you know, great things or, or not so great things. And the way that I've chosen to respond to those things is really the difference maker in where I am today versus where I could be. So I just strongly believe, and it's, it's part of what I talk about when I speak in front of audiences today, whether it's college students or young professionals, leaders in the workplace, et cetera, is that so many things are going to happen to us that we can't control. Um, but at the end of the day, really the only thing that's in our power to control is how we respond to those stimuli. And so on a day-to-day basis, I mean, I'm encountered with a little bit of everything and I have to remind myself that all I can control at this point is how I respond. So what are you going to do, Raven? Are you going to get upset? Are you going to get angry? Are you going to get agitated? Are you going to pop off? Are you going to pull back? Are you going to reserve your energy? And are you going to be responsible um, with your level of self-care and respond in a way that's appropriate? You know what I mean? So um, that's the quote I love and live by, man. Mm, so give us the last time uh, where you had to kind of really look at and like kind of lived that the last moment. Mm. So this is a great one. I'm about to get really vulnerable, right? Okay. All right. So in my business, I run what's called the Center for Next Generation Leadership and Professional Development. So we provide soft skill development, mm-hmm. leadership development, professional development, et cetera, to young professionals in the workplace. And so a lot of that calls for us to do work with corporations. Yep. We also do a lot of work with colleges. Well, one thing that I birthed last year was this idea to have an intern conference something that had never been done anywhere across the country. And I saw clear value in it. We would, in essence, provide the citywide conference an opportunity yep. for companies to send their interns to get developed from a soft skill standpoint. Mm-hmm. So having led interns in the past in my former career, I understood that a manager really doesn't have time for an intern, if we're honest, right? We just really yeah. want you to get the work done. <laughs> just yeah. do the work, do the project, and I'll see you at the end. Uh-huh. Um, but really, in this generation, I mean, they want so much feedback constantly. They want um, hand-holding. They need coaching, et cetera. And so I thought, all right, we create this environment where we would provide that coaching. We would provide that soft skill training and development so that the organizations could really just focus on the performance during the summer. And so we did it, you know, pulled it off last year. We had five companies participate. We had 25 interns in our pilot and made money off of it, which was something that I honestly did not expect to do in the first year. So it was great. Uh, Well, this year, obviously, uh, you know, launched a book, spent a lot of time doing that. And I skated the line in terms of of a deadline to really start pushing this conference and making it happen. And so long story short, I made the call to to pull back and to cancel the conference, to pull back on the brand itself for the time being, um, because I got maybe like two no's or two people who participated last year who decided not to this year for one reason or another. And so at the end of the day, I mean, I had a choice to make how to respond to that stimuli, to respond to those no's. And I chose to reserve my energy, you know what I mean? Not freak out, <laughs> not spaz out. 
But to pull back, make a logical decision, a responsible decision. I have many things that have been given to me and gifts to steward. And so what am I going to do right now? Do I continue to push forward because it's something that I'm just sold out to? You know, as entrepreneurs, we have something that we believe in strongly. And so we push hard to make it happen. Or do I make a responsible decision um, and pull back and, and put those resources elsewhere? So I had to apply that quote real time. Um, you know, the yeah. stimuli was there. How am I going to respond? And hopefully I made the right decision. We'll see. It seems oh, like man. It. Yeah, reserving energy is, is, is so key. It's so hard because it's so seductive as an entrepreneur. We have something that is successful in your eyes. It's something that you believe can grow. Um, to just continue, even if even if in, in your head you're like, this may not be the right time. Mm-hmm. Or honestly, even if it is the right time, it's the right third time for something else. Absolutely, yes. But in your head, you're like, well, shoot. I mean, I could do it. Right. But just because you can do something doesn't, doesn't mean, mean you, you should. should. It is it's so hard because you, I mean, I see a patient. It's, it's two types I'm seeing down. I'm seeing the, 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 the person, an entrepreneur, and this is not even an entrepreneur. This is just people in corporate or just in general. People that are involved in a lot of stuff, just doing a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. being active in a lot of stuff, and that's cool. But you probably seen in your career, there comes to a point where it's like, do I really need to be active in everything? Yeah. Or do, can I just be phenomenal and give all my time to one thing and then build up the resources, the cloud, et cetera. So when I want to go back, because you can always go back. You can always go back. Even if you want to go back to corporate America right now, right. You can go back. Absolutely. And, and make a bag like it's nothing. But sometimes we have this mentality that there's no turning back. Right. It's ain't Game of Thrones. That, no. You can, you can always like. <laughs> you can always <laughs> turn back. And to your point, I think it's harder for people like you and I who are good at many things yeah. to pull back because we have so many things that we could be doing. Like you could be in corporate. You could yeah. be a dish, a dish jockey somewhere. You yeah. could be, you know, interviewing people on television. You could be an entrepreneur. You could be a speaker. There's so many things you could be doing. So it's hard for people who are multifaceted and multi-talented to pull back because especially when we're problem solvers at the same time. Mm-hmm. So anytime we see a problem, we're inclined to solve it. That's what we do. And we use all of our multifaceted approaches to do it. But, you know, being responsible stewards of those many gifts is figuring out when is the right time for me to apply certain skill sets and when is the right time for me to reserve that energy for something else. So to your point about finding the right -er opportunity, like that's a matter of focused energy, in my opinion. Mm, Yeah, man. This is like I tell y'all getting y'all getting a lot, man. Y'all getting a lot. All right. So let's. uh. Let, we're not we're not going to jump into your story just yet because I, I started this new segment. I actually started it with uh, Sister Bird. Shout out to Sister Bird, Bird Consultant. Um, I, I started a section called Find the Pulse. And I always try to, because every every podcast has its own, his own aura, his own energy. Um, and a lot of it comes about either the week before or the week of kind of where the person's at. Yeah. Because I, I interview this day, it's going to be a great podcast. If I interview next week, it may be slightly different. You feel me? So... Um, from from la- from this week, from this week on, or for this week rather, what is one word you would use to describe this week, um, and why did you choose that word? Hmm, one word I would use to describe this week. Ooh, you know what? I have such a selective memory; it's crazy. Like <laughs> <laughs> anything bad, negative in any way, kind of just moves to the back of my brain. Let me think, what would I use to describe? You know what? I would say, I would say prioritization, honestly. 
Um, I made the call this week to book a flight for next week to go to California because I just need a little change of scenery. I just need, I can still work there about a week. So yeah, it's a short, short little vacation, workcation, I should call it. So I still plan to work. I still plan to entertain opportunities and um, seek meetings with potential clients and all that type of stuff. But I just felt like I needed some space from my normal routine, my normal people, et cetera. I just needed a change of scenery. So I felt this need to get into this vibrant and creative environment. I just need to be creatively inspired. Let me say that as an entrepreneur. So I'm like, all right, I need to get away. I've been, you know, a few places across the country. I was like, I need to get to LA. I need, it's either LA or New York City. And I was yeah. like, let me go to LA because I need the beach. I need the, you yeah, know, the more beauty. Space, exactly. It seems like. Yes. Yeah. Give me more space and, and just creativity. And honestly, man, watching Nipsey Hussle's funeral service just gave me this, this desire to be in that space very soon. And by that space, I mean Los Angeles. So I was like, let me, let me go. So I say prioritization because I prioritized my desire, my personal need for this vibrancy regardless of cost, regardless of, you know, what I thought I had going on. Cause we always make excuses for ourselves not to prioritize ourselves. I'm horrible about that. So I just set that all aside. I'm like, man, I'm gonna prioritize me today. And so I just booked a flight. <laughs> do you talk, I mean, we're not gonna, we're not gonna jump there right now, but do you talk about that a little in your book as far as prioritizing yourself specifically when you become a leader? Mm. Cause it's so, I mean, leadership and I, now that I'm, I'm I'm older and I really study media now and I look at certain things, I feel like leadership gets a weird rap. Like leadership gets the, all right, you're the person that does, takes all the bullets. You just, you sacrifice so much, but then you end up sacrificing your, yourself and prioritizing yourself becomes second nature. Like many of us, as you listen to this podcast and probably you yourself, mm-hmm. have sometimes looked at your schedule. I'm like, did I really schedule these meetings? <laughs> Am I really talking like right. every day? And, and then... It comes weird when every single day you're in meetings and doing stuff that, quite frankly, is not adding to the bottom line. Right. Maybe not really, it's just not really moving. He's like, I didn't sign up for this. Yeah, yeah. Just because somebody asked you and you immediately just started accommodating, making times. You say, I know I need this time for myself, but you just start pushing stuff. Everywhere. Yeah, that's a, I don't know. Why do you think it is, why do you think it is, it's, it's like that as, and, and it's probably not just even millennials, but even so for the listeners in the podcast where we're consistently thinking about adding more stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we are, I think we live in a culture today where multifacetedness, if that's a word, is glamorized, right? So being many, many different things looks real good. So if you go to somebody's Twitter account now or somebody's Instagram account now, the more icons <laughs> they have at the top, right? Saying yeah. what they do, uh. the more inclined you are to respect them. And I think, honestly, the very opposite. I think there's value in being an expert. I think there's value in having expertise and being solid in one particular field and being strong at that, having a reputation and a brand that people can rely on for this one specific thing and they know what they're going to get out of that. I think there's value in that. I think there's more value than that than than coming to your page and seeing your, you know what I mean, a media consultant, a leadership expert, a you know podcaster, a a, an interview, a life coach. <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry, my brothers, that you listen. People know I'm sorry. I've seen too many life coaches at 23 
This nigga got one. I'm like, bro. Listen, what life? <laughs> what life? You just graduated, right. man. But hey, I ain't gonna knock the hustle. I told y'all start where you're at. So you're like, yo, you told me. But I'm like, I. Yeah. Right, right. That's right. That's right. And so I think there's value in being, you know, an expert. But to answer your question, if I talk about prioritization in the book, I do to a certain extent, you know, but the book is based off the premise that this person reading it is interested in being a phenomenal leader, one. And then two, they're interested in transcending in their career in some capacity. So they're looking for promotions. They're looking to lead larger teams one day and they are trying to be effective exactly where they are. And so the book is going to help you prioritize and figure out where you should be focused um, in terms of your development personally, in terms of your career development, and also your professional development as a whole. So in in some cases, yes, you're going to get some guidance around what to prioritize on a day-to-day basis, but it's more so how do I prioritize my efforts and my energy today so that from a long-term standpoint, my career is set up to the fashion that I want it to. That's huge, man. So on that note, let's jump into a little bit about Raven Solomon. So for some for our viewers that um that have never heard about you, um, it's your time to kind of just share your story. Yeah. And I'm just gonna shut up, sit to the side. Hey, shout out to myself. I think this season I've been doing a, a a little better job of just letting the guests talk. So shout out to me, man. <laughs> shout out to yes, me. Yes, kudos. Kudos, great. So my name is Raven Solomon, obviously. I am from Charlotte, North Carolina, born and raised. So I'm probably one of maybe 10 Charlotteans left in the city. But I'm super... <laughs> <laughs> Got a lot of transplants, man. It's sexy tra- now to come to Charlotte. It's sexy now, but back in the day, it wasn't all that glamorous. But we welcome all transplants. Um, so I was born and raised in Charlotte, North Carolina. I grew up in a household, for the most part, in the beginning of my childhood, that was pretty solid, right? I had a mother and a father who are college graduates. They went to Federal State University. Shout out to Federal State. And you know, they met there. They fell in love. They had three kids. My father was a businessman, so he ran a radio shack. I don't know if y'all old enough listeners to, <laughs> to know what radio shack is, but the, yeah, he ran a radio shack. And then my mother was a child care provider. And so she started her own daycare when we were little so that, you know, she could care for us. But at the same time, she could make a little little money at the same time. So um, it wasn't until I was about eight where my childhood changed um, for the better, for the worse, whatever. Um, but my father, unfortunately, became addicted to drugs. So college educated businessman fell captive to cocaine. Mm. And one night, apparently, he was about to become abusive to my mother. And mm-hmm. luckily the telephone rang and the, on the other line of that telephone was his sister. And she could, she could just hear all the commotion in the background and knew that something was wrong. So she insisted that she call you know, my grandmother and my mother's side of the family to come over and uh, resolve the situation. So long story short, I remember being awakened in the middle of the night, my grandmother just throwing stuff in the, in the suitcase. She threw us in the car and we were gone. And so we went from the south side of Charlotte, five bedroom home to my grandmother's two bedroom home on the west side of Charlotte. Shout out to the west side of Charlotte, uh, mm-hmm. West Boulevard, Betis Fort Road, et cetera. And so if you've ever been to Charlotte, you know how segregated mm-hmm. it is to this point. It was no different back in uh, in the 90s. So growing up on the west side of Charlotte, I really didn't realize we didn't have a whole lot um, until one day I started I asked my mom for a pair of jeans. And I'll never forget the look on her face when she told me that she just did not have it. Mm -hmm. And from then on, Greg, I made a vow that I just wasn't going to ask for anything if I could help it um, anymore. And so 
I started to sell candy in high school or in middle school, rather. Uh-huh. So that was my first business, uh, my first time <laughs> interacting with profit. I knew if I could, you know, buy a pack of 10 for a dollar and yeah. sell it for 25 cents, I'd have a dollar fifty profit off each pack. And so I started doing the easy math and started pushing candy down the halls of, of Smith Middle School. And so with that, you know, I began to expand my little wardrobe, buy my little faded glory jeans from yeah, Walmart. Faded glory, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> faded glory jeans from Walmart, and um, just just doing the best that we could. My grandmother helped raise us, helped raise us, and uh, she was just a phenomenal woman. I mean, she would get up in the morning every morning after her retirement from Lance. She was a factory worker. She would get up every morning and she would walk us to the bus stop every single day. And I never quite understood why she was walking us to the bus stop. Until one day I got off the bus, I was in middle school and there was a drug bus going on. So cop cars everywhere, SWAT team everywhere. Imagine getting off the bus as a, as a, you know, sixth grader, seventh grader and a drug bus is happening right in front of your eyes. And so at that moment I realized, well, wow, we, we don't live where I thought we lived. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, But kudos to my mother and my grandmother for just making us feel safe at all times. Um, And so, you know, long story short, I got to high school and I was in the ninth grade. My mom let me get a perm for the first time. <laughs> uh, so I got a perm. And uh, just to, to expedite the story, within about six months, the entire backside of my hair was gone. And I wow. was diagnosed with alopecia um, as a ninth grade young woman. Wow. And, you know, as a little, as a young girl, young woman coming into womanhood, the last thing you want is something, you know, um, yeah affecting your exterior very traumatic you know what i mean very very the hair exactly exactly so i got permission to to wear a scarf on my head every day and that's when bullying really became an issue in my life and so people would come up behind me and pull my scarf off you know what i mean just to expose my baldness people would um ask stupid questions in the middle of a large environment a large crowd just to kind of bring shame to me and I started to develop this, this anxiety, really, of people. Um, I would walk with my back to the lockers. I would rush to class just to make sure there wasn't a, a substitute. Because if there was, I needed her to understand why I was wearing a scarf. So she wouldn't ask me in the middle of the class um, mm-hmm. and embarrass me all over again. So ninth grade, 10th grade was tough for that reason. Um, but my grandmother stepped in again. She's just a phenomenal woman. Um, she used her retirement money to send me to a dermatologist so that I could get injections in my head wow. um, so that my hair would grow back. And, you know, we're sitting in the studio today. This is all my hair. <laughs> so thankfully it grew back. Um, and I'm so grateful to my grandmother for doing that. She would also, you know, take me to the library every day. Um, it was either the library or watching Bold and the Beautiful with her and I just I didn't want to watch Bold and the Beautiful with her <laughs> so you know she really prioritized education for me um I I struggled as a reader and always have I've never been the best reader in elementary high school middle school just never have always read slow etc so she would take me to the library every day mm-hmm. to hopefully change that curve and so I'm so grateful for her uh for doing that but Nonetheless, fast what's forward your, what's your to your grandma's name. Her name is May. May Springs. Hey, we got it. We had to May Springs. There we May go. Springs. Yeah, wow. that's every day she walked off. On, every walked single off day. to the bus, uh, almost every day every, to the library. Yep, every day to the library. Every day she bought me a cello again with her retirement money, so that I would have some sort of outlet outside of hood life. Right, that uh-huh. I would be exposed to 
orchestra, you know what I mean, as a young woman growing up on the west side of Charlotte. So, what did that do for you, playing like the cello? Man, things of that nature? it just, it broadened my horizons and just, just, by, gave, just, by having. just by having it. You know, to this day, we can probably count how many women play the cello, how many black women play the cello um, in the United States of America. It's insane. And so for me, having an outlet was valuable, but then having an unorthodox outlet that would provide me the opportunity to to see, you know, this massive orchestra play and create this sound that was just so beautiful. I mean, I she she gave me perspective, a different perspective by giving me that that instrument. So phenomenal woman, phenomenal woman. So we went to high school and I was in I was a senior in high school. Get my hair done. I decided to go for homecoming queen. My hair had grown back by then. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> my hair had grown back by then. Had a little more swag. I <laughs> uh, was super involved in in high school my senior year, and so I remember calling my mom to come pick me up from getting my hair done. And so she sent a family friend to pick me up. Pick me up. We were driving down the highway, and she passed my exit. I'm like, well, where are we going? She said we're going to go to your grandmother's house. I said, okay, that's cool get to my grandmother's house and I see just a line of cars going down her street and I'm like something isn't right and so I walk into my grandmother's house and I see my mom looking like she's never looked before and long story short my grandmother passed away that day of a heart attack just out of nowhere she she I saw her that that day um and so tremendously heartbreaking of course but I decided to still you know walk on the field still still go out for homecoming queen the next day and I tell folks all the time, because I tell this story a lot when I'm yeah. speaking on stages. But, you know, it, it would make for a great story if I won Homecoming Queen, but I did not win Homecoming yeah. Queen that day. I'm still <laughs> a little bitter about that. But yeah. nonetheless, I knew that my grandmother would just want me to to persevere. And so I did. Um, and, and after graduating from high school, I decided to go to NC State, North Carolina State University. So um, freshman year there was awesome. I, I just, my whole time at mm-hmm. NC State I was intent on maximizing that opportunity because for me, as it probably is for a lot of your listeners, for me, that was my opportunity to write my own story, to to finally become the author of my own story. Because up until that point, what the life that I lived was a result of other people's decisions. It was a result of my father's decisions to hit the pipe one day. It was a result of my mother's decision to marry him and to leave him, et cetera. And so when I stepped on the the campus of NC State, it became my life will now be a product of my decisions. And so I took it seriously. I mean, I I studied abroad. I learned a second language. I went out for one of the the most prestigious scholarships at North Carolina State University and won that. I got you know my my college paid for. Um, and you know, one day I was a freshman, I got my, uh, report card or transcript, whatever. And I'm looking through, you know, my grades and my grades look pretty good. And I scroll down to the bottom and I see this class rank and it says one of like 9,000 something. And NC State, they had class ranks in college? They had class ranks in college. Yeah. So I was like, ah, this is not right. So I, I take the transcript. I go to the multicultural student affairs office. And I'm like, hey, y'all got to help me. Like, how do I, how do I fix this? This can't be right. And they looked at it and were like, oh, well, you just got to go to the registrar's office. I'm like, all right, cool. So I go to the registrar's office and I'm like, hey, you know, I got my transcript here. I just think there's an error in the system. I just want to see if you can, if you can figure it out. Tell me what my real rank is. So she took the paper back. She goes, she does her little thing on the computer. She comes back and she says, well, Miss Solomon, there, there's no mistake. You are indeed number one in your class. What? 
That cannot be. Wow. Cannot be. Little girl, west side <laughs> of Charlotte, getting off the bus in the middle of a drug bus, right? Yeah, Struggling yeah. to read. All of these things, this cannot be my life. So, I mean, I the moment I heard that, I became almost obsessed with keeping that a reality for one reason. That was for my grandmother, period. And so, long story short, I sit before you today as, as one of few black women valedictorians of North Carolina State University. So Wow, man. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's huge. So, question with that. Uh, yeah. Did you ever get a B? <laughs> you know what? I got one B in geology. Who gave you that? Man, What's the professor's I know, name? Right? <laughs> we need to find Treason. him. <laughs> we need to find that guy for real. Yeah, well, I don't know why I took get... geology to begin with. Yeah, geology. Yeah. Like, how, was it like an eighty nine? You know what? I don't even remember. It had to be in the in the the eighties, the high eighties. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so it was like on the verge, on the cusp. Shout out to the a. professors in, in college that with the eighty man. There's a dude <laughs> that gave me an eighty nine point two, oh, and then he oh. left the university. Like, I emailed. Him. I tried to find dude. Right, man. right, right. I, I wish I knew this dude name. I, now we got LinkedIn and all these things. I have to. <laughs> I have to see my man. That's a valid concern. I mean, you like, gotta bro, mm-hmm. bump that up, mm-hmm. bro. Like, if I got a seventy nine, that's an S or B, mm-hmm. bro. Bump that to an eighty. Don't. Play me with no C, bro. Please don't. Because then I could have just then all how much time I could have saved. I would have just did uh, not turned in some of those homework, right. some of the essays, right? And because if I get a seven now, I might as well got a seven. That's right. Like, seriously, <laughs> exactly. Like, I, might, I might as well got a sixty nine point exactly. nine. Right, 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 right. That's exactly but, uh, right. Well, yeah. So you valedictorian of North right. Carolina? No, yeah. Oh, I say North Carolina State, North Carolina State University. That's right. First and foremost, real quick, why did you go to state? I went to state. You know what? I was this close to going to North Carolina Central. And at the last minute, Central, no shade, right? So they they kind of rewound. They backed up on my housing plan. And I was like, nah, yeah. Nah, we getting shade, man. Nah, nah. I, I ain't here for that. I love, I love Central. I'm from Durham, but nah, fam. They, they, I hear these stories too often. You know? I was just like, yeah. So I called NC State. I'm like, hey, is this offer still on the table? They were like, yeah. I was like, all right. Well, here I come. So I chose North Carolina State. And I have zero regrets. Yes. Okay. Now we're at North Carolina State. We just graduated graduated as valedictorian. Yeah. So what's next? So the crazy thing is I decided to join, I don't know if I should say the company or not, one of the largest food and beverage companies in the world. I decided to join them. And um, I took this leadership training program, this leadership development training program that would, within a year's time, put me in a position where I would be leading a team. And so I decided, hey, I should... I should go for this. Although the crazy thing is it required for me to <laughs> to run a route or run a chit route for about a year, <laughs> run a chit route for a year. So I was getting up at 4 a.m. in the morning as, you know, the valedictorian of North Carolina State University, number one out of over 8,500 students getting up every morning on my hands and knees, running a chip route, putting up chips, putting up Doritos and Tostitos. And I probably just told you the name of the company, but that's all well and good. Um, So I decided that because I fell in love with this concept called servant leadership when I was in college, that that made sense to me. It made sense for me to have to learn the business from the ground up, to have to validate myself as someone who could actually do the job of the people I was about to be leading. Um, And I saw the value of it. So I decided, all right, let's do it. I'll run around for a year. And I'm kind of glad I did. I was in the best physical shape of my life when I ran that route. And so um, it went well. I, I ran the route for about a year, took over a team. Quick question, though. Yeah. 
running a route, like, can you explain what that really is for the audience that never really ran a route? Like, break us down. What was it? You woke up before I am. Yes. So what did you do until you ended? Yes. So I get on a truck. I, I wake up at 4 a.m. I drive to the facility. It's a distribution facility. So it's a warehouse where luckily my truck is already loaded. So I hop in the truck and I head to my first stop, which is probably a Food Lion or a Harris Teeter or Walmart. And it's my job to get off the truck, unload all of the boxes of, of chips. That, that load could be anywhere from 200 cases of chips to you know, five, seven cases of chips, depending on the type of customer. So in a given, you know, day, if you're on a specific type of route, small format route, uh, I would have maybe 13, I would say eight to 13 stops a day. So you're taking the product off of the truck, you're bringing the product in the door. So that's physically taxing in and of itself. And then um, you have to check in the product. So you are probably talking to a store manager or a receiver. They're counting every bag you've got in your box. Then after you do that, you are merchandising the product. So in some cases, there are some companies where delivery people are just that and they don't have to do any other merchandising, which means stocking the shelves. And then there are other companies that do all of it. And so this particular company was one where you had to do the merchandising. So, you know, I would put up anywhere from 200 cases of chips in a Walmart to <laughs> seven cases of chips in a Circle K. Wow. And you go on to the next stop until you're done. So that day could start at 4 a.m. and end at 4 p.m. or could start at 4 a.m. and end at 8 p.m. Wow. You just run until the truck is empty. And then you did that for a year. And then what was next? Did that for a year. They gave me my first team, which was a small team of about six men. Um, and these were white men. I'm a black woman. <laughs> just in case your listeners needed that visual. And they were older. Like, so at the time, how old were you? I was 22. I was okay. 22 when I took over my first team. It was a team of six, which um, quickly grew to a team of 12 within about three months or so. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they were all old enough to be my parents, some of them my grandparents. Mm. Um, and so that's a, a challenge in and of itself, trying to figure out how you lead people who are older than you, more experienced than you. Um, but then doing so across ethnic differences, across yeah. gender differences. I mean, that field in and of itself is extremely male dominated. Um, and so not only am I leading people old enough to be my parents, but a lot of my customers were older white men as well. And so it's my job to convince you that I need more space in your store. Mm -hmm. I need you to buy more chips. I need, you know, X display over here and Y case of dip or stack of dip over here. And so um, it was it was an interesting time. It was very uncomfortable at first, for sure. Mm -hmm. But over, you know, the course of a year, I got really good at it and um, got promoted and got promoted again and started to get on this fast track, um, if you will. And things were good. I was on my second promotion down in Greenville, South Carolina, my third promotion, one of the two down in Greenville, South Carolina. And I had transitioned down. It was my second day on the job. Mm -hmm. And I got a phone call from my brother. And he said, hey, mommy passed out at work. You need to get to Charlotte. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's, that's odd. She was just here the day before helping me move in. Yeah. It's like, okay, cool. So we, <clears throat> I hop in the car. I pack a little overnight bag, race up to Charlotte, at least going 100 miles an hour because that's my mom. It's the, the love of my life. I get to the hospital. I remember very vividly walking into the hospital doors. And at this point, I just started running. And I saw that same family friend who picked me up I was getting my hair done when my grandmother passed away. 
Mm-hmm. I saw her in the hallway and I knew something wasn't right. So long story short, my mother passed away of a heart attack as well that very day, second day on my new job. Right. And so that became yet another obstacle, right? It's already this obstacle of you've got to figure out how you lead people who are ridiculously more experienced than you. You also now have to figure out how you transition into a new city, a new environment. And then we add on the fact that now you're dealing with a level of grief that you've never experienced in your life. And most people your age haven't either. At this time, I'm 25. Yeah. Um, and so I spend, you know, about a month in Charlotte taking care of my mother's affairs. We, we obviously handle her services, which were beautiful. And, you know, I find myself in a place where I have to pick myself up again and get back to work. At the end of the day, I have bills to pay and have a life to, to live. And yeah. so I get back to Greenville about a month after, actually it was probably more like 25 days or so after burying my mother. And I remember very vividly, gee, I was in um, the kind of the room kind of like this, um, getting ready for the next day. I was pumping myself up. I'm like, all right, Raven, you can do this. You are made for this. You mm-hmm. have this job for a reason. You got this. Like your grandmother raised you this way. Your mother raised you that way. You know how we do because we have to. Yeah. And my uncle calls me while I'm doing that. And he says, hey, how are you? I'm like, you know, I'm just doing the best I can. He says, I hate to do this to you. And I'm like, what? He said, if you ever want to see your father alive again, you better get to Atlanta now. I was like, what? What do you mean? Like, what? Literally, I just buried my mother 25 days prior. What do you mean that my father is about to die? And so we race down to Atlanta and we sit by my father as he passes away of cancer in hospice. So less than 30 days after burying my mother, we buried my father. And to say that I was overwhelmed is an understatement. Um, But what I didn't realize is that I was overwhelmed by emotional Mm -hmm. grief and trauma. Uh But I just kept pressing, man. I knew that I had a job to do, a team to lead. And so I did that. I went back to work shortly after burying my father and I grinded and I got really good at that job too. Um, And I stayed in Greenville for about two years. They were like, hey, we got another job up in Pittsburgh. Are you interested? At this point, I don't really have a reason to stay here. Like, you know, my parents aren't here. I do have siblings. We're good. So yeah, sign me up. I go up to, to Pittsburgh and do the worst job of my life easily. The worst job. Why you say job. that? So what changed? It was... Was it more... Was it the situation or... I think it was both. I think yeah. it was both. I, you know, moving around a lot and a lot of your listeners can probably relate to this is very difficult. And I don't think you realize how difficult it is until after the fact. You realize that you haven't really built strong friendships. It looks good on paper. It looks hey, good. I've, I've been in Pittsburgh. Exactly. I've been in South Carolina. I've been in Raleigh, yep. and I've I've experienced all this stuff. But speak to the 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 the, the real and the foundation of it all. What things you may miss? Yes, relocation is hard, and it's underestimated significantly. I mean, when you get a job offer, you're like, oh, it's a new city, it's a new vibe, mm-hmm. it's you know, new people. They're gonna pay for my house and all of this stuff. It feels real good, yeah. but. It sucks. You know, you have to literally 
pick up everything you have, move to another city. All of your previous friendships are back in that city. And while you may still be able to maintain conversations with these folks, it's just not the same. It's, it becomes, who do I go to dinner with on a Saturday night? Who do I, you know, um, spend Friday night with? Who do I talk on the phone with? And who can I go get coffee with? And all of these things, they change tremendously. And I didn't realize how valuable those things are until now that I don't have to worry about it. So I think a part of my my time in Pittsburgh that made it suck was that, you know, kind of starting over again mm-hmm. from a social standpoint. The weather was horrible. Like, you know, sunlight for me actually matters. It, yeah. it makes me productive. It gives me energy. And Pittsburgh, I think, has less than 40 days of, of pure sunlight a year. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's horrible. Horrible. So there was that, and then the snow was depressing. Oh, I mean, it was because I lived in York, Pennsylvania, and that no. snow in Pennsylvania, man, it just driving in the snow. Yeah, it's it's just, and then and then the snow is pretty for about five minutes when it's white, but then as you drive, I mean, everything's get gets dirty, and it's just it's a gloomy gloomy place. I, no no shade to those who yeah. love and live in Pittsburgh. It's, yeah. it's a beautiful city when it's sunny yeah. and when it's not snowing. But for me, it just wasn't the best. And then the, the customer, and you know, a lot of your listeners may be able to relate to this too. I was sent to Pittsburgh, meaning that a couple of levels above my boss's, you know, pay grade, if you will, made the decision. My boss did not make the decision. So my boss did not feel as though I was qualified to be there. He didn't think I deserved to be there. I hadn't had previous customer experience. This is a large account. It's in turmoil. In his eyes, we need somebody who's experienced, who's done this before, and who can fix the problem. Mm-hmm. And he felt like that wasn't me. Is he wrong? Uh, I mean, on paper, sure, I didn't have the experience that he would have liked, but the organization made the call that I was capable, that I had the stretch, and that this was an opportunity that they thought I could handle. Um, and so... With that dichotomy, it made it it made it horrible. I mean, he made my life a living hell for that reason. Uh, he just didn't want me there, and to me, he wasn't he wasn't the best leader. And I, you know, I'm sure he won't listen to this. And if he does one day, I hope that he, <laughs> yeah. he's changed. He reflects. Yeah, exactly. I hope he, he becomes more self aware. There we man. go. Yes. Send the email. Send that LinkedIn <laughs> message. Hey, I know. Blah blah blah. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so that that made the job really really difficult. And so I stayed in Pittsburgh for about a year, year and a half. And I got another opportunity to come down to to Charlotte back home. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was the job of my dreams. It was what I wanted from the day I stepped on to to that organization. And so when they said it was in Charlotte, they told me what the pay would be. (laughs) And they told me, you know, that I would be an executive at 28 in, in this huge company. I was like, sign me up. So I took another promotion, moved down to Charlotte and you know, I was running a $200 million business. I had well over 200 employees and 2,000 customers we were servicing. And I was responsible for maintaining relationships with. And it was it was bomb. It was perfect. The market was beautiful. The sun was out, you know what I mean, most of the time. So mm-hmm. I loved that job. Um, the Panthers made it to the Super Bowl that year. Oh, man. That's right. So if, the, if your home team makes it to the Super Bowl, people are already having parties buying a lot of your product. Yeah. yeah so it was really, really nice for, uh-huh. for many reasons. And um, long story short, I was doing my job. I was doing it well down in Charlotte until one day I walk in the house. I greet my best friend and then I start to see 
sparks, you know, kind of all on the ceiling. And I started to spin around. And the next thing I know, I wake up in an ambulance. Mm. And I'm asking the attendee, like, what happened? And he said, we think you had a seizure. Like, a seizure? I've never had a seizure a day in my life. What do you mean a seizure? He said, hey, we're going to take you to the hospital. We'll figure it out. They took me to the hospital, ran all of these tests. They couldn't find anything. Mm -hmm. They were like, we think you're okay. We just think it was an isolated incident. You know, have you been stressed? And I'm like, is the sky blue? Yes. Like, (laughs) we're all stressed at this point, right? We're all experiencing some stress. And they were like, hey, take some time off. And, you know, we release you to go back to work. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. So I went home, took a whole three days off of work, just like many of us do, put the the job before us. And I go back to work. Um, And less than 30 days later, I remember leaving the gym. I just done a little quick workout and I pull out of the parking lot of the gym. And that's the last thing I remember. And I wake up again in an ambulance. Wow. And I asked the attendee again, what, what happened? And he explained to me that I had a seizure while I was driving. And that as a result, I ran through a red light. I hit a car. I bounced off the car and I hit a tree. And when they got to the scene, my foot was still revving the gas And because of this tree, this tree stopped me from driving into a bank. And my first response was, did I hurt anybody? Because, I mean, I can almost handle hurting myself, but hurting somebody else, um, just like I I couldn't deal with that. And so luckily, nobody was injured, including myself. They took me to the hospital, ran all these tests, and they still couldn't find anything. So it became a very long journey. Because then in your head, you're always thinking, especially to get behind a wheel. Exactly. Like. Yeah. And so they took my license for six months and, you know, mandated that I that I figure out, you know, what's going on in my body. And of course, I was going to do that anyway. So I started going to a neurologist and we're getting all these tests trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and then, you know, long story short, I was diagnosed with epilepsy. And... You know, we were taking all these different medications, just trying to get it under control throughout that time. I'm taking a short term disability from work because I can't handle all of this right at the same time. And I started going to counseling and I realized that for me, at least in part, epilepsy was a manifestation of undealt with trauma for years and years and years. I'd share with you guys that my parents passed less than 30 days apart that I lost my grandmother that you know I've lost my hair and experienced bullying and all of these things I've never quite dealt with I just Mm -hmm. steamrolled through um and I think that epilepsy was just that that one finger that literally just sat me down and forced me to deal with the things that I had just been plowing through and so I took significant time off work. I took about eight months total off of work. I tried to go back in the middle of that, but I just couldn't physically do it. Mm-hmm. And so at during that eight month time frame, I mentioned I went to therapy and I started, I traveled, I turned 30. So I went, you know, off to Europe and I spent a, a month in Europe and Africa. And I just lived for me for a change, less about what other people expected of me. Mm-hmm less about what the organization wanted and asked me to do, but more about what I needed for me to be well and whole. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of that eighth month, eight months, they called, the, the organization called, said, hey, your long-term disability is up. We need to know, are you going to come back to, to the org? And I said, no, I'm not. So I, did, I had no clue what I would do for a living. So you were off for eight months? Yeah, I was off for wow. eight months. You know, I tried to go back in the middle of that, but it just didn't work out. And so, yeah, I took eight months off and 
a, a large part of that was just trying to get well physically after the accident and figure out, you know, where this this epilepsy thing is happening in did my brain. Did you ever brain. get it figured out? Yeah, yeah. They did find out where the seizure activity occurs in my brain. And we finally found a medication that doesn't make me ill because there's a lot of different seizure medications, but they have some heavy side effects. And so some of them just you know, sedate you almost and you feel like a zombie. I couldn't do that. Some of them make you nauseous. I can't do that. Some of them make you sleepy all the time. I can't do that. So it took us eight months to find a medication that that did not make me ill. And so today, you know, I can proudly say, thankfully, that I haven't had a seizure since I left that organization. Um, wow. Now, is that the organization? I'll, I'll leave that to, to be determined. <laughs> um, but I, I really think it's, it's a result of a couple of things. The medication, so it works. Um, second thing is the, the fact that I finally dealt with all of that turmoil and trauma and worked through that instead of just plowing through it. And then third, that I'm happy what I'm, I'm doing. You know what I mean? I'm fulfilled. I'm in my purpose. I'm in line. I'm in order. And I'm happy. And that feels good. And so, seizure free. Man, that's that's <laughs> phenomenal. So, I guess this is when you transition into your career now as we kind of transition into your career and then delve into the book. Uh, is this when you made a decision, hey, I'm going to do my own thing? That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So, jump us right into, okay, eight months. Now I was like, what the heck I'm going to do? When did it decide, well, I'm going to turn this into um, a speaking career, leadership development training, and then um, start to write a book? Yeah. So when I decided that I wasn't going to go back to said company, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, there were a lot of things that I've, I could have done to your point right earlier. You're multifaceted, multi-talented. You've got all these different gifts. There are plenty of things that you can do. But what should you be doing? Why are you here? And I think that I oftentimes now at this point in my life, look at epilepsy as a blessing because it, it almost knocked me into my purpose. And without it, I would still be selling chips somewhere. You know, what I mean? <laughs> not exactly for me, the most purposeful life. Yeah. So um, I decided that I wanted to go ahead and pursue what a lifelong dream had been for me always was to be a speaker. It's like, well, mm-hmm. there, I guess now there's no better time. I always thought that I needed to be a millionaire before I was a speaker, though. Like, I just thought that I needed to have this yeah. huge culmination to my life to make my voice and my story worthy of hearing. And luckily, that, that hasn't been the case. And I'm grateful for the opportunities now. But I decided to pursue a speaking career right after leaving that organization. And I did that for probably about a half a year to maybe nine months. And as you know, coming into the speaking industry is not easy. Yeah. You know, you have this dream of, oh, I'm going to speak and people are going to pay me thousands of dollars to do it and to tell my story. And you need far more than just a story to be an effective speaker. Mm-hmm. And so um, I started to, you know, do Toastmasters and kind of just develop the skill set of a speaker and to build out my business. So I started, you know, getting my branding done and just thinking about the administrative side of being a speaker. And I did do it for about nine months. And then I started to get this itch to, to lead people again. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to have a business that existed outside of myself um, for many reasons. And so I decided to then start the center, uh, the center for next generation leadership and professional development, simply because I felt like I had a very experienced and robust 
resume that I could use to help other people who were in my same position years prior. So Mm -hmm. that student who's coming out of college, who's going to go through this managerial training program, who needs to know how to lead people old Mm -hmm. enough to be their parents very soon. um, How do we get them ready? I also noticed during my time at said organization that there were a lot of people who did well, like I did young people, but then there were many, many more who didn't. And the difference between us was literally just this thing called soft skills. At the Mm -hmm. end of the day, that was it. And I would hear my customers as a speaker, my potential customers constantly talking about, oh, millennials this and millennials that and blah, blah, blah. And so I thought like, hey, I could solve that problem. And so that's why I established the center. um, And we focus specifically on soft skill development of millennials and Gen Z. And that could range anywhere from public speaking training to presentation skills to networking, to emotional intelligence, self-awareness, uh, DNI, and so many other things. Um, so it's really about the person as a leader. And so we do leadership development, professional development, and career development for the next generation of leaders in the workplace. And that literally stems from my experiences mm-hmm. within said organization. And so um, I decided to write a book because... As you know, as a speaker, you yeah. really need a book, right? You got to have one uh, for many reasons. And I decided that I just didn't want to write any book, though. I wanted to write a book that was actually meaningful, yeah. that would be needed, and that would solve a problem. As an entrepreneur, I know better than to create a business that doesn't solve a problem or to create yeah. any product that doesn't solve a problem. Mm-hmm. So I decided that I was going to write about this topic that... I think would have helped me tremendously when I was transitioning out of, you know, college into the professional world as a, as a aspiring leader. And so this book, Leading Your Parents, 25 Rules to Effective Multigenerational Leadership for Millennials and Gen Z is literally about how do I, as a recent college graduate, transition and prepare for a leadership role in a professional setting. So Mm -hmm. that professional setting can be private, public, corporate, et cetera. But it's literally about how do I lead multi-generational teams? So teams of people who are old enough to be my parents, hence the title. So a lot of people think it's a parenting book. It is not a parenting (laughs) book. It is a leadership (laughs) book. (laughs) No. So will you so let's 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 delve into a couple of the tips like so um what do you, what would you say are some of the some of the biggest tips when you go speak on the road and and when you got feedback from the book that resonated the most um with with the people your readers but also too would probably resonate the most with this audience. Mm. Yeah, I would say so the first rule in the book okay is don't fall for the HR pickup line. Okay. Break it down. Can you guess what the HR pickup line is? Without looking at the book, <laughs> uh, probably we we treat all employees like fair and diver- everybody has a voice. That's and that, yeah, that, kind of stuff. that is very very close. Pretty much that it's you know you'll hear from an HR professional or you know a leader in the organization where you're being recruited. Oh, we allow our employees to bring their whole selves to oh, work. Oh yeah yeah, whole, bring yeah, your whole bring self. your whole self to work. Don't bring your whole self to work, ma'am or sir. You know there there are things that you should bring to work and there are things that you should not bring to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the book, I help millennials and Generation Z understand 
the downfall to bringing your whole self to work a lot of times and helping them draw the line between what's appropriate to bring to work and what's not and how do you determine what appropriate is and what appropriate isn't. So that's the first rule in the book. Um, One of my favorite rules in the book is to communicate their way. And so when we're talking about leading multiple generations at the same time, you have to understand as any leader that the way you receive and interpret things is not the way that your team is going (laughs) to receive and interpret things. Mm -hmm. So it's important that we understand how the baby boomer generation um, is inclined to communicate, how Gen X is inclined to communicate and why. And then understanding how we then communicate in their way so that we can then get the best results out of their performance. Mm -hmm. Um, The same thing goes for understanding their values So there's a chapter in there about their communication styles, but also about the things that they value and why. So if we think about um, just like people receive love in different ways, like through the five love languages, I also think that people receive leadership in different ways. And so when it comes to the baby boomer generation, the way that they best receive leadership is through respect. So if they feel as though their experience is respected, their voice is heard and respected, the way that they communicate is respected and their preferences are expected, then they respected, excuse me, then they perform far better than when they're not, right? For an Xer though, a Gen Xer, the way that they best receive leadership is through trust, autonomy. And there's so many different reasons why that is. You'll have to get the book to understand why. And what I'm telling you, everything is going to be broke down in the most pragmatic and and deep way. So it's not high level like a lot of books. They skim and they they do the easy boy. Right. Like, I'm I'm telling you. (laughs) I'm telling you. (laughs) It is in depth. So understanding that an Xer is going to receive leadership best through trust for many reasons, but that just means giving them their space, understanding that they don't need to be their shoulder looked over. They don't need constant check-ins like a millennial might. They don't need consistent coaching, etc. They just need the space, the autonomy to execute and the accountability um, required to do so and the resources. Outside of that, you just got to kind of let them be. Millennials and baby boomers are quite different. They both like the the attention and they both like the hands-on approach. They both like the feedback. So those are just a couple of different, you know, nuggets, if you will, from the book. There are 25 rules in there. All of them are super important, but they're broken out into three, three different sections. The first section is about what are the rules I need to abide by and the things I need to know before I take my leadership role? What are the things I need to do and execute against while I'm in my leadership role? And then the other, or while I lead people, I should say. And then the other, the third part is, what are the things I need to do around my job? Um, And that's the part that gets you promoted, which is what people don't understand. They always think it has to do with the performance, but it's not all about performance. That's probably, I would say, 40% of why people are promoted. It really is about the ancillary things you do outside of your regular job. Do you have stretch? Do you have the network? Do you have a mentor and a sponsor who's speaking on your behalf? Um, Are you a leader around the office? Are you able to influence your peers, et cetera? So there's so many other things that people look at when making promotion decisions. And that last section of the book is about that, the things you need to know to get promoted. Mm, Before we go in, because uh, I got our our final, final kind of question talking about the future, but there's three rules in particular I just want to just 
um, hear your your personal thoughts on. Um, the first being, I think this is a, one of the more because this is where I kind of ended. I ended at Rule Fourteen, not ended, but I but I'm a re go re go in, but lose the followers. Yeah. So what's what's your take on lose the followers? Because I, I think that was very interesting that chapter that read. Um, and I, I wish that this could be like on a megaphone for for all everybody in the world to to read and listen through. Yeah. But can you break that down a little bit for our, for our audience? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I think this is an original quote. I'm a, I I still take credit for it because I've Googled it. I can't find it. All right, I'm going to take my credit for it. Is that um, the best of leaders are, they're not followed, they're joined. And so Mm. as a leader, we're constantly thinking that the people who are working for us, quote unquote, are our followers and that our job is to lead them from the front. But in actuality, they are really the people who are designed to come alongside you and help execute your vision together. So it's a joint effort or it should be. And so I believe that the best leaders are those who walk alongside their people versus who walk out in front of them. And so the book or the chapter, I should say, about losing the followers is really just about how do I, as a leader, move from my people being trained and processed to follow me and move more so towards a space where they're joining me in a joint effort to execute and win against our goals. Mm. And then rule number 17, demonstrating presence. Specifically, this is really deep because majority of my, uh, the people that listen to my, my podcast, shout out to my black women, like 65%, 60 to 65% in presence. And this is also for men as well, but sometimes as a black woman, you you gotta. It's a little bit different. Like yes, you, you. I can come in six three, and I, yeah. I'm, I got. Oh, boom! Mm-hmm. And even as a short dude, you can be in it. You can you can. As a male, we gotta embake privilege of a certain amount of presence. That's right. And you don't really have to shrink to a certain extent. So how do you how do you uh, bring presence? Or can you talk a little bit about that chapter, or just in general give advice for people when they talk about the workplace and engagement. Um, bring presence. Yeah. So the word presence in the context of the book is about executive presence. And that is so, so important because it literally is all executive presence is. I'll use our terminology as a culture. It's just swag. That's it. That's it. You hear this big lofty word about executive (laughs) presence and you think it's got to be this and it's got to be that, but it really is just mere swag. It's your ability to command attention in a space. It's charisma. It's charm. It's professionalism. um, It's, it's swag. It's the thing that when somebody walks in a room, it's, it makes you look at them and it makes you pay attention. Typically when an executive enters a room, you know that they're an executive that's what executive presence is. It's the aura that they have when they when they walk into a space. It's the way that they dress. It's the way that they greet you, right? So there are so many different things that demonstrate executive presence in so many different ways mm-hmm. that you almost think it's ambiguous. Like, how do I actually demonstrate this thing? Or how do I become better at executive presence? And so in the book, I give a couple of very, very turnkey things that you can do. But one thing is literally the way that you greet new people, the way that Mm. you engage new people. So first of all, whenever I greet someone for the first time and I shake their hand, if you ever notice when you greet a politician or when you greet an executive, most of the time they'll shake your hand with one hand and their other hand will be on you somewhere. So they may, you know, like pat your shoulder or they may cup your hand with both hands all that is is a very it's a it's a sense of welcoming and engagement it's a sense of kind of you know a warming effect if you will 
So what they're doing physically with their body is welcoming you into their space. If I'm just shaking your hand with one hand, it's almost like I'm extending you out, right? I'm kind of pushing you out. So it's almost a subconscious thing you can do to make people feel comfortable and warm and engaged. Um, So that's, that's one thing. The way that you dress is another. When I was in corporate, I talk about it in the book a lot. I would wear blazers every day in my senior, my executive level job, simply because I was young, I was a female, and I needed people to know that I was in a place of authority. I wasn't mm-hmm. your peer and I wasn't a subordinate. I'm I'm in control. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would do is, <laughs> this is funny, I call it the principal effect. So I would wear shoes that were loud. They would clank. Mm-hmm. Right, so when I'm coming... <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm telling you, this is technical. <laughs> hey, and this is beyond this because I know some of y'all, if you in a, if you at a company right now and you like, yo, yes, yes, yo, when, when I drop this, man... Um, definitely reach out, make those connections, bring her in. Cause I mean, this is uh this is tactical. This is in the trenches. This is warfare right here, man. These are, <laughs> this is like goodness gracious. I feel like I'm reading uh 50, uh 50, 500, what's the laws of power of Robert Greene? Goodness gracious. But yeah, we're, we're yeah, we're clanking shoes. So what, yeah. what 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 did that do? So the only reason I wore clanking shoes, first of all, I like the design. So in this, it wasn't necessarily intentional to be like at first. <laughs> it wasn't that at first. But then I began to notice though that do you remember when you were in elementary school and you would hear clanking in the hallway? Oh, yeah. You would immediately think that that was the principal or that was yeah. some figure of authority. Yeah. Those subconscious cues don't really go away within us, right? And so as a leader, if I wear loud and clanking shoes when I'm coming down the hallway and my team members and their team members and their team they members they get on alert. Me, that's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. And so they send the pigeon. Yeah. So is it that I'm trying to create this this subconscious fear? No. What I'm trying to create is a sense of authority and respect. Uh-huh. So one of the key principles in the book is about how you gain and keep the respect of those you lead. Because it's mm-hmm. not about being liked. I think that's one of the downfalls or the mistakes of young leaders in general is that we want to be liked. We think that it's our like culture, right? Yeah, but we've been normed into that. Mm-hmm. Like we've been normed into because we do certain things. We post a certain picture in order to yes. exacerbate like. Not exactly. because of how we feel. Yep. And everything is even in LinkedIn now, which is is getting disgusting. Um a shout out to LinkedIn though. It's like <laughs> now we have love, like yeah. questions. This is really weird. Yeah. But, all these different I, I, reactions. I see how we can get into that space. Yeah. We get into a place where we're just so, we're, we're looking for the validation of other people so much so because we get it every day on Instagram. Every time we get a like, that's a subconscious validation of who we are. So it's the same thing when we go in or comment. When we go into our leadership roles, we're constantly looking to be liked and we think that that validates who we are as a professional. And in fact, if there's anything you take away from this conversation is that it's the exact opposite. You should not be looking and seeking to be liked by those you're there to serve. You should be looking and seeking to be respected, period. And so... Me wearing clanky shoes when I come down the hallway and me wearing a blazer as a sense of authority, all that does is command a certain level of respect, which is what executive presence does. It commands a certain level of attention and respect. And last thing, because we give you've given away enough on this book, but I do want to talk about the last thing because I was going to go the confidence route, but you've already kind of displayed that, even though that's big, but you got to get the book for that. Um, <laughs> but I do, I do, I want to go to the rule number 25. Yes. Uh, rule number 25. 
And rule number 25 is don't be so sorry. Mm-hmm. So I'm pissed because I haven't read rule 25 yet. So I'm kind of like giving my, my cliffhanger, um, read, doing my own just self a disservice. But break us in. Like, why did you choose to end, end the book with that? And give us just a a, a, a slight top of that nugget. Yeah. Not the whole Not thing. Not the whole thing. Slight. Yeah. Well, if you, if you think about it, and this was almost a chapter for women more so than anyone. Because we are constantly in, the, we constantly apologize. We're constantly saying, I'm sorry. We have a culture of apology. You know, if I, if I mistake and, and, you know, not hold the door for you, oh, I'm sorry. Or if I, if we're walking down the same hallway and we're about to converge and you're like, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Everything is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But what we don't realize that in a professional context, especially as leaders, when we're constantly apologizing, we are diminishing our level of authority and validity in the space. So it just talks about different ways you can acknowledge being wrong or acknowledge a misstep without saying, I'm sorry, without apologizing. So stop apologizing for who you are and the mistakes you made and how you've shown up. Instead, acknowledge the mistake, correct the behavior and move forward. Mm, man, this is. This is crazy. <laughs> this is this is a lot. This is this is I honestly say, and I used to say it at the end of the podcast, but this is by far, I mean, this is up there with probably top top two, top three podcasts ever recorded. Just, oh. it's just because I mean it felt like we've been talking for an hour and thirty, but it's really an hour and it's like really? we've covered so much ground. Yeah. Like I've never usually it takes and one you're professional, so it's easier, mm-hmm. but usually it takes so long to cover so much ground. That's when my podcast be two hours, <laughs> an hour and a half, whatever. Hey, shout out to people that's listening, like yo. Greg, I record a podcast. Your mom's an hour and a half. Doesn't mean anything. <laughs> don't, don't, don't do that. It's all but love. Literally, like this is we've. I feel like we've been on a a, a roller coaster, and it's really. It, it feels like longer, but it's really only been an hour, man. Wow, it's crazy. So when we talk about future, right? Mm-hmm. So we have the book. The book is phenomenal. But what is your not? But however, what is your future plans? Just for okay, you've accomplished a lot. Um, you feel a lot. Actually, before I even go there. Um, I, 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 every time I get somebody here, one, how you describe success now? So, what does mm-hmm. success mean to you now at this level of your career, where um, corporate can't really define it? Yeah, like you can't be like, oh, I'm in a C-suite. I'm this. Mm-hmm. So, how do you define success now? And then, two, how do you, how do you approach social media now? Mm. Um, as a leader, as a as entrepreneur, whatever, because yeah. it's a, it's a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's my norm. Everybody listening to my show know I asked two questions at once. So. You please just tackle both. I love that. So the way I define success, I was in corporate for eight years. And the way that I then defined success was by promotion. The way that I define success now as an entrepreneur is by overall fulfillment. Honestly, am I doing what I was put on this earth to do at this moment? Because that will evolve. So I can't say that I'm fulfilling every bit of my purpose right now. Hopefully I have time to do that in total. But am I fulfilled and am I fulfilling? So one day I think I'm going to write a book called How to Be Fulfilled, How to Fulfill and Be Fulfilled. So at the end of the day, if I am fulfilled as an individual, as a professional, I'm taking care of myself as a whole person. And if I'm fulfilling my calling, my destiny, which is to impact people and by impact people, I could do that in many ways. But what I've chosen to do is help people learn how to lead effectively Why? Because that's exponential impact to me. So if I teach you, it's almost like teaching me in the fish, right? If I teach you 
how to be led, that's great. But really what I want to do is teach you how to lead. So then you are impacting the people you lead 10x, 20x, et cetera. And it just continues from there. So I feel like success for me is to fulfill and be fulfilled. And I can say that I I'm, I'm feel like I'm doing both at this point. Um, and then the second question, the way that I approach social media, ooh, I, I, I hope that I'm answering this the way, you, way you're thinking um, but it's kind of twofold. So for me these days, social media, and I hate to say this because I know I'm going to have a lot of my like ride or die fam listening to this, but social media for me at this point has become a business. It is a vehicle through which I acquire sales. And so for that, I have to approach it as such. So there's not enough or a lot of me sharing things, which I talk about in the book, sharing political views and sharing a lot of my faith-based views. And although, you know, there's a space for that within my social media presence from a, a personal standpoint, um, all of my public facing social media accounts are driven for, you know, economic impact, economic gain for myself, my family, and those that I employ. And so it's important for me. It's not just for me. Um, it's important for me to steward my influence accordingly. And so, and so with that, I have to make sure that the people consuming my content are consuming healthy, knowledgeable, statistically backed and supported information. So the way that I approach social media these days is is like a business. I mean, the the Forbes article that was just released, which I'm so excited about, um, about the book was literally because of social media. So I, social media is so impactful and such a powerful marketing tool that we should be using. And I think sometimes in our culture, we get so comfortable that we misstep by sharing too much. And that can sometimes forfeit our our platforms as professionals. Um, so my favorite ones, favorite platforms are Instagram and LinkedIn. But I think it's so important that you understand who your customer is and that informs you on how you leverage social media. So my presence on LinkedIn is quite different than my presence on Instagram. So it's so interesting because my audience member is on Instagram, but the person who decides to bring me in to speak to that audience member is on LinkedIn. So I've got to figure out how I market to both. Same thing for the book. The buyer is probably a parent or a professional making the decision to buy for a millennial or a Gen Z. So the way that I market has to be very intricate and precise. And it's a lot of work. But um, for, yeah, long answer to a very simple question. Social media for me is business. Nah, that's, uh, that's huge. You, you hit it where, I, where, and everybody has their own perspective. But in a day, once you make a decision, like you make a decision, you move on. Mm -hmm. um, you move with it. Yeah. It's like a, no pity padding on this. Nah. You make a decision. So um, with that being said, so you you think about the future, right? And I, I kind of alluded to it before that, before I answered that multi-double-deck question. What do you think the future looks like for you as far as a, as a, as a speaker? Um, and you can kind of speak this into existence where you, where you want, what stage you want to be on next, yeah. what type of corporations, what, what specific audience yeah. um, that you're looking for, you could provide the most value to, mm -hmm. as well as from a, a business standalone side, outside of what you do as a speaker, um, what do you think the future holds with that? Yeah, I'm so excited about the future. I mean, this is my third year 
doing what I do from an entrepreneur standpoint as a speaker and now as an author, an entrepreneur in a training development space. And um, I think year five is going to be 3x year three, which is going to be phenomenal and crazy. And the way that I plan to get there is by continuing to add value, man, and, and seek impact. And so the, I think the best places where I can add value and impact people is from the largest professional stages that exist. And that's my goal. And so with that, my ideal client is a corporation with a decent amount of millennial and Gen Z leaders or who play in the space that serves a millennial and Gen Z audience. So if a company is bringing in, you know, droves of college graduates for their rotational programs or they have large internship programs or they have a large leadership development managerial training program. All of these these types of developmental programs are where I and my organization play best. So these are, you know, my goal is corporations like Xerox and Enterprise and Coca-Cola Company, um, Amazon, and all of the technical companies as well, you know, um, Merck Company, like the the opportunities are endless simply because every organization needs talent and with talent comes a need for talent development. And that's where I, as a speaker, as a professional come in. Um, and that's where also where my organization comes in. So it's super excited about the potential stages, but um, also the growth of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it is a valuable tool for any professional, young professional, whether you're a leader or not. So whether you're an individual contributor in your current role or you actually lead people, the book is valuable for both. Why? Because it teaches you how to navigate the professional world, um, not just how to lead people. So, man, the future for me probably includes another book. Um, Yeah, yeah, probably another two or three books. But honestly, after pumping that one out, I'm just, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. I need a little more time to recover from that. Mm. But yeah, more more to come. And then the last question before we enter the culture change round is, uh, when it's all said and done, like, uh, what do you want your legacy to be? Mm. I want my legacy to be one of impact over influence. And not to say that influence is bad, but I don't do what I do for the influence, the followers, the likes, the comments, the accolades, the awards. I don't do what I do for that. I do it for the impact. And so if I can leave this earth knowing that I impacted, meaning I solicited or um, began change, that's what impact is to me. It's actual evolution. So if I've began a change in somebody, then I'm good. That's what I want my legacy to be. Um, I don't know what my future looks like from a, a family standpoint, you know, the hubby and the kids and all that type of stuff. But what I can say about my life today is that I've impacted a decent amount of people. And before I leave this earth, I need that to be, you know, 100x that. Not for me, but because I feel like the people need it. The people need it. So my legacy is is one of impact, one of change, 
and one of progression. And 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 I actually I got one more thing after culture change. Um, right before culture change rounds. Right now, locally in Charlotte, um, what are some of the initiatives you volunteer with? You're involved with now, um, as a community leader in Charlotte. Yeah, good question. So. There are a couple of things. Um, one, there's an organization called Communities in Schools. Yep, CIS. Yes, love Communities in Schools. Um, and then there's another organization. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name, which is going to drive me crazy. But um, doing some work with Communities in Schools through another organization. There's a young lady that I mentor. Um, it, the organization, I wish I could think of the name. But it will literally connect you as a professional or just as a person who wants to give back to a young person who's homeless in the Charlotte area. Oh, wow. Super what? impactful. Gosh, I wish I could remember the name. Is it nationwide or just I think it might be just a Charlotte organization. I think it's just a Charlotte organization. That's so if you're dope. in the Charlotte area, That's yeah. I would want to, I mean, I'm cool with mentoring, but I mean, I, I feel like the work we serve, it's kind of mm-hmm. hard as a speaker because you serve people so much. Exactly. And you add on a, a mentoring, but something in that nature, somebody dealing with homelessness. Exactly. That can... Not to say it all. That I get, I would be like, okay, I could do that. Yeah, I will make time. Yeah, I will make time yeah. for that. But it's like another kid. Uh, it's just, it's just hard because you serve, you give so much. You do. Like, I'm gonna give. I'm gonna give more. Yeah, you do. You you pour out so much. But for this particular organization, it's about just sometimes just being there. So you have two options. One, you can either go eat lunch with a child every every week once a week, or you can be their reading partner. So you literally just come and you read with them. And you all it is, it's just an, an effort to show support, ancillary support to these kids who are going through such a hard time. And the the particular program provides snacks for them every day because a lot of times they're going home and they're not eating. So that organization is near and dear to my heart, so much so that I can't think of the name. Um, but I'll get I'll get the yeah. name for you to share. Uh, it's awesome org. And then from there, you know, as a speaker, we talked about being on all the time and and pouring into so many people. But I think as a as a speaker, as you grow and as you transcend from one market to the next, et cetera, you can price yourself at a certain range, and that's good because you're trying to obviously feed your family. But oftentimes, a lot of our youth organizations can't afford that. A lot of our nonprofits, our churches cannot afford that. So one of the ways that I give back is that I commit to doing at least two free engagements um, a quarter, if not more than that. So sometimes it's once a month. And so those are typically for churches. Those are typically for nonprofits. Um, So tomorrow, I'm actually doing one of those at the YMCA as a teen summit that they're doing for teens all across the city of Charlotte. And so... um, stepping up and and providing my services for free so that's a way um there are just other speaking avenues training avenues that that we're constantly providing discounted services for one i will mention is that we as an organization the center we come in and we provide this soft skill training to professionals within corporate america and so these companies are paying us a decent amount to do that well, we've taken that same content and made it available to HBCUs at a very, very, very discounted rate. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's another way we're giving back because I've seen, I've recruited on an HBCU campus. I've recruited on PWI's campus. I've led and managed people from all different different um, schools. And I've seen that there's just a little bit more building out that we need as yeah. people of color before we enter these professional yeah. environments. And so I wanted to make that same content accessible to um, to students of color on HBCU campus. So that's another way we get back. 
Gotcha. I love that. And is there somewhere on your website that 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 uh, spotlights the the HBCU portion of that, or that's something in house that you kind of just been working? Yeah. With? So it's something in house that we've okay. been working and kind of pushing directly to the schools, gotcha. um, trying to get some decision makers, trying to get that in the hands of the decision makers. Another avenue is we're tapping the shoulders of corporations who have stated a clear, um a clear what's the word I'm looking for commitment. commitment that's it a clear commitment to HBCUs to say hey why don't you pay this fee for us to come into these HBCUs and provide this this content so right now it's kind of a behind the scenes effort yeah and I would love to make it something that we put on our website though I don't see why not I got you yeah I got you I got you so we got a culture change round that's five rapid fire questions Ooh. and hopefully we get rapid fire answers you ready to go yeah uh, what's the best piece of advice that you have never received? Ooh. <laughs> best piece of advice I've never received. It probably goes back to my time at said company. One of the mistakes that I've made is that all of my network was in that organization. So when I was there, I did not have a network in other cities. I didn't have a network outside of that particular place of employment outside of that industry etc so when I was forced to 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 leave mm-hmm. that organization my network left with me and so the the advice that I didn't get was to network outside of this company build relationships across build relationships up build relationships down because you never know who you're going to need and when so network outside mm-hmm. of your company I don't care how good it's going <laughs> Um, if you had to add one habit and take away one habit, what would they be? Easily, I would add the habit of getting up early. That is not <laughs> my ministry. I am horrible. I just like, I like to go to bed late. I'm a night owl and I need my eight hours of sleep to perform at my best. So I would add getting up early and I would take away. I'm really bad about starting a book and not finishing a book. So I would add or I would take away, you know, my lack of <laughs> follow through uh-huh. in finishing books. Um, yeah. That would have if you were given $100,000 right now, what's the first thing you would buy? Ooh. I would buy the development of the app that I'm thinking of in my head. Okay. Easily. I got you. I got you. And uh, what is your biggest fear? <sighs> Failure. Unfortunately. In what sense? Like, as a perfectionist, I don't like to fail. Even though... We live in a space now, especially as entrepreneurs, where we're like, oh, you know, fail fast, fail forward, all of this stuff. It's still uncomfortable. You know what I mean? And I'm a person who likes to win. I, I'm competitive by nature. I like to be successful. And although we can see failure as definitely contributing to our success, I still, I like, I like to win. So I, I'll see you on the court anytime, Greg. Yeah, you cool? Yes. Nah, it, it, this <laughs> I've been in the weight room, so I'm, I'm a bully. I don't, I, right. I'm, not, I'm not one of them dudes that like, oh, I'm playing against a woman. Like, right, oh, I'm right, just right. going to shoot jumpers. No, I'm going to the right, rim. I'm, I bet. Meet me at the rim. I bet. I'm not, I'm, I'm definitely not that guy I used to. I was like, hold up, nah, all this equality stuff. Nah, uh-uh, uh-uh. Nah, 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 nah. I, true, I, nah, true. I can't do that. I, I'm going right to the rim, attacking the glass, getting <laughs> Rebounds, fouling. All right. Like, well, you know, I, I saw you shoot that one shot on Instagram. So I, I would hey, go to the rim too yes, if I was you. Hey, that, <laughs> hey, shout out to Justin Burton, man. JD Groove for posting that nonsense, man. I was doing my cool shot. You know, when you get the ball, you just do the little cool right, jump. Right, right. <laughs> if, you were the, <laughs> if you were the president of the United States, what's the first thing you would do? Ooh. Hmm. 
I would fix our prison system. Yeah. And that's a that's a long process, I'm sure, obviously. But yeah, I, w- I would fix that. Our school to prison pipeline, um, the quote unquote war on drugs that we still have going on in our country today that targets black and brown neighborhoods. I would absolutely. Uh, yeah, that, that'd be where I began. Okay. Yeah. I like that. Um, and we're done with that. And the last question we always have for every single person that's ever been on the show, I believe, out of the 100 plus episodes mm-hmm. is, if you could change one thing about society, most specifically, if you could change one thing about society, most specifically our African-American culture, what would it be and why? Ooh. I would... I would change our the wealth gap. I would change the wealth gap because I think our community, we already do so much with so little. I think if we actually had parity in the resources, we would be unstoppable. I mean, we already are unstoppable, but we would be so much further ahead. You know what I mean? If we would have got our reparations, right? If we would have gotten, um, if if our... Black Wall Streets weren't destroyed if our um, monies in the Freeman Bank weren't taken away and burned. And you know what I mean? We would be so much further than we are. So if I could fix anything with the magic wand, I would create wealth parity. Um, and I think that that would help our world. But I also think it would further advance people of color in the globe um, because we we just we do so much. We turn water into wine. And uh, think if we started with wine, where would we be? <laughs> man, man, man. Well, I will say that has been, this has been one of the best podcasts I've ever recorded. Um, shout out. Um, I, I'm honestly about there. It's best best of season six. Uh, it is, is, is great to, to have you on in person, man. The stories, the way you took our audience and myself from just the emotional highs, lows, and ever. And then the value drop um, with just snippets of the book, man. I appreciate you for coming all the way to Durham, North Carolina, yes. coming live to the lab, yes. the dungeon um, <laughs> that, that, that I call uh, and allow me to brighten it up because typically I've been here with a hoodie with no with no lights. <laughs> I'm like, it's so weird, man. Um, but I appreciate you for for blessing our audience, man, with uh, a powerful message, a powerful story, mm-hmm. and powerful tools that they can apply like right now. Yeah. Um, yesterday. Absolutely. Uh, to really take their corporate life, uh, their personal life, mm-hmm. um, and their emotional life to the next level, man. Yeah. So, where can our audience find more information about you, buy the book, do all that good stuff? Yes. So can definitely find me on ravensolomon.com. That's R-A-V-E-N-S-O-L-O-M-O-N.com. There you can also purchase the book. The book is available on Amazon as well. But if you buy it from my website, I'm able to sign it and personalize it for yeah, you. Buy so. it from the website, man. Amazon be trying to take cuts. <laughs> Shout out to Amazon. I just did the I just did live it with him. <laughs> But nah, man, they try to sell me on because they got all this stuff. Yeah. Out of shit. I'm like, bro, nah, they just they take a third. Yeah, they do like, easily <laughs> right off the top. So they get it back in a month. So I don't know. They said the whole time. They yeah, just, yeah, yeah. And you have to pay shipping on, on Amazon if you order it from the site. The shipping is free. So find me at ravensolomon.com. You can also find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. On Instagram and Twitter, it's Raven underscore Solo. On Facebook, it's literally my name as well as LinkedIn. So I look forward to connecting with your audience. So Minority Troubles in Nation, make sure, make sure after you listen to this show, um, you don't have to comment on SoundCloud. 
comment on LinkedIn, share the messages, buy the book. If you're a part of a company or whatnot, be like, yo, I love, I just, after you read the book, I would like to bring it in, whatever. Uh, send those emails. Like, last question. I don't think I asked this enough of my speakers. Like, for those that may be in um, middle management or uh, just started to work and they're like, yo, I think this would be dope for organization. What is the best way to get those introductions where they're not necessarily the decision maker? Yes. Great. I, a great question. I think one of the best ways that you could potentially, the best route you can go is see what the message is of the speaker, figure out where it fits into your organization currently, and then ask your manager how and who you should pitch this to. I think that's the, the easiest and most simple way to do it. If you already know who to pitch it to, then I would immediately think of from a sales perspective, like this is my sales training coming in. I would think of the problem that it solves. Think of the cost that it's going to take to actually execute. But then also consider any obstacles, any barriers, excuses that you're going to get and figure out solutions for those before you go in and present that. So um, once you know how much it costs, figure out a way to, to get those funds. And, you know, um, if you know that the room size is going to be an issue, find a room that's going to you know accommodate it or figure out your marketing plan, et cetera. So I think any good speaker, though, is going to help you if you reach out, ask the questions that you need. They're going to help you sell whatever you're trying to do within your organization if they can. So that would be my advice. And that's my call to action for this audience. Um, As we move forward and we continue to grow with this movement, I mean, I appreciate the comments. I appreciate the downloads. I appreciate you buying books. Um, However, it's like, and that's why I love about last, uh, yesterday's uh, live event with Amazon. Like, boom, he was my L, not LB. Woo. He was a big bruh, like three, cross three years ahead of me. He worked, he has a pivotal position at Amazon and uh, he was able to 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 make it happen. Yes. Like make the event happen, um, put his neck out on the line. Yes. And and he has never bought in a book for me. Mm. And I and that doesn't that doesn't mean anything right. for me. He, he he allowed me to break into this space exactly. um, without having a major cosign. Cause unfortunately, when you're black in certain these companies, um, your word ain't bond. Mm. They always gonna ask questions on questions on questions. Mm-hmm. So just to have people that really believe in the message, they love it and they act on it. Um, and many of you have more power than you think in your organizations That's to right. drive change, um, to recommend people, and to stand for it, all right? So don't just to seek up free game and just go ahead and use it and whatnot. Nah, we got to continue to pay it forward because that's how, that's how we all continue to be trailblazers and empower other trailblazers that's right. by spreading these messages, not just via shares, which is great. But I think we're at the level now, um, and you're at the level now, whatever organization you're in, um, to push for it. Bring, bring more people of color in. Um, yeah. and specifically, my corporate brethren and sisterin, because y'all be at these sales trainings and these meetings that they got these small little lists of people they go with their right. Polodex. And it's like, yo, like I, I, somebody told me, somebody was doing a seminar, and no offense, it was like uh, riding a bike. And they made some, it was it's like a two-hour training. He, got, he probably got paid like seven to ten grand because he's somebody's uncle, cousin, whatever. But it's like, nah, let's advocate just like we advocate online when somebody is out of pocket on black Twitter, et cetera. Um, let's advocate to bring more people of color into these corporate spaces uh, to, to do these trainings, do these events um, and, and things of that nature, man. So that's my call to action for my Know the Trouble is a Nation. Uh, and as always, I appreciate y'all for giving us well over an hour of your time. I didn't hit the hour 30, mo- uh, hour 30 minute mark. So shout out to me again. Um, y'all do y'all thing, man. Love y'all. Make sure to do two things, two things only. One, make sure you share this episode with a friend and rate it if you're on iPhone. And two, make sure you're changing the freaking culture. Good night.